Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I despair of making myself understood by posterity, by the present age, and even by you. To collect and arrange the documents illustrative of it would require as many lives as those of a cat. You certainly never felt the terrorism excited by Genet in 1793, when 10,000 people in the streets of Philadelphia, day after day, threatened to drag Washington out of his house and effect a revolution in the government, or compel it to declare war in favor of the French Revolution and against England. The coolest and the firmest minds, even among the Quakers in Philadelphia, have given their opinions to me that nothing but the yellow fever could have saved the United States from a total revolution of government. Nearly 20 years after the events of 1793, former President John Adams wrote these words to former President Thomas Jefferson about a perilous time in the nation's history that both men had lived through. Though the yellow fever epidemic would not have as much of a direct impact on either Adams or Jefferson as it would others at the time, it is clear through Adams's letter that it marked one of those events in the public psyche that forms a prominent marker in history, much like 9-11 or Hurricane Katrina would resonate for contemporary Americans listening as this is recorded in 2017. Though 20 years had passed, it still ranked in Adams's estimation as a key point in the nation's history, and many modern students of the time period, myself included, would tend to agree. Thus, this episode of the Presidencies of the United States will be devoted to the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia of 1793. To guide you through this epidemic disaster, I am, as always, your humble host, Jerry Landry. When last we left off, the Washington administration was implementing its decided course of action in the Genet Affair, and though it would take some time for everything to play out, the uncertainty of the crisis seemed to be ready to go into abeyance. However, before the ink could dry on the draft message to demand Genet's recall, it was becoming clear that a personal tragedy that had hit the presidential household had in fact only been a harbinger of a more widespread crisis. Tobias Lear had been Washington's trusted right-hand man and personal secretary since before he had assumed the mantle of president. It was thanks to a recommendation by Benjamin Lincoln, a major general in the Revolutionary War and the first Secretary of War under the Confederation government before Henry Knox, that the young man from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, ended up traveling to Mount Vernon in May 1786 to assume his post as Washington's secretary. Lear had played a key role in moving the Washington household from the banks of the Potomac to New York City and then on to Philadelphia a little over a year later. He had escorted Washington to and from his first inauguration. He was even involved in making arrangements for the transportation of the people enslaved by Washington to and from Mount Vernon, as discussed in episode 1.12, and of ensuring that they remained enslaved despite Pennsylvania state law. He and his wife Polly had lived in the presidential household since their marriage in April 1790 and were considered by the Washingtons as a fixture in their household. 
Quote, the Lears occupied a large room on the third floor, which was also the floor on which the president's office was located. Their son had been born in the president's house in March 1791, and Washington had been named his godfather. It seemed that the personal and professional lives of the Washingtons and the Lears would be eternally linked. By the summer of 1793, however, Lear, like Jefferson and Hamilton, had decided to leave the administration behind. As would prove to be the case in future presidential administrations, following Washington's re-election, and with the knowledge that it was highly unlikely that Washington would seek a third term, Lear began to think about what a future in a post-Washington administration would look like, as he would likely not be able to retain his position as presidential secretary for whoever succeeded Washington. At this point, he was still in his early 30s, had what he believed would be a growing family to think about, and was in the largest and, at present, capital city in the United States, where possibilities abounded, especially for a person with a close relationship with the most prominent figure in the nation. Lear saw the possibilities coming down the line in the new federal city and shared his thoughts with his current employer, who both helped him to secure financial backing from former Senator Tristram Dalton of Massachusetts and was willing to give a personal testimonial. On June 13, 1793, Washington wrote to the commissioners of the District of Columbia in a letter that would be carried to them by Lear himself, that Lear, quote, has it in contemplation to make, in conjunction with others, a considerable mercantile establishment in the federal city. If he should be able to obtain such a site therein, and upon such terms, as will answer his and the views of his associates, from eight years' intimate acquaintance with Mr. Lear, from his knowledge of business, good sense, penetration, and caution, I am certain that any proposals made by him and acceded to by you will be executed with punctuality. Friendship and justice requires this declaration from me on his behalf. But as I have intimated before, it is with you to decide whether the proposals are such as to comport with your general plan for the advancement of the city. Unlike as with Hamilton and Jefferson, it seems as if Lear's anticipated departure had been foreseen by Washington and was being conducted with his blessing. Being intimately connected by sharing a common roof, it is likely that it had been discussed for some time, and the changeover would be carried out in such a manner as to provide for a smooth transition, as Bartholomew Dandridge, Martha Washington's nephew, and Howell Lewis, the president's nephew, had been brought in to take over Lear's duties, which were gradually being phased over to them. If you're sensing an ominous, but then, to all of this, dear listener, then your keen ear is not failing you. But then, July 1793 rolled around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As described by Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone, quote, After a mild winter and early spring, unusually wet weather had been followed by the hottest and driest summer within memory. Streams dried up, insects swarmed, and sickness increased in the countryside as well as in crowded Philadelphia. The fever first appeared there on the waterfront. Jefferson said it started in the filth of the docks, and not unnaturally, people attributed it to the refugees from Santo Domingo and the French sailors. 
We have not checked in on what's been happening in Saint-Domingue since we left it in 1791 in episode 1.10. So let's do a quick recap to get up to speed. Nothing had been settled in the French colonies since the slave uprising had begun in August 1791, and in some ways, the conflict had merely grown in parallel to developments in continental France. Part of the problem in responding to the situation in Saint-Domingue for the French was that information to and from on either end was inevitably three months out of date. There was an inherent disconnect. Meanwhile, the economic ramifications were rather quick in coming. As early as January 1792, the price of sugar tripled as the supply dramatically declined due to the rebellion in Saint-Domingue, and ultimately, the plantation output in the colony would never return to pre-1791 levels. Thus, in an attempt to better organize efforts on the ground and rally pro-French support in the colony, the French Republic had sent commissioners to the colony. One of these commissioners was Leger Felicité Santonax. Like Genet, he was associated with the Girondins, but though his level of involvement is disputed in various sources I consulted, it seems that he was also affiliated to some degree with the Société des Amis des Noirs, or the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. Despite having such a lofty name, the group at the beginning of what would come to be known as the Haitian Revolution would not be calling for an end to slavery, but rather would be focused on ensuring equal rights for free people of color. Those rights would be affirmed by the Girondin-led French National Assembly in April 1792, but the situation on the ground in Saint-Domingue was just not that simple for Santonax. As we discussed in episode 1.10, the aims of the free coloreds and the aims of the enslaved population were quite different. But Santonax was one who saw that it could be to the benefit of France for the two to be brought together in order to thwart both the whites who were in rebellion as well as the British who had aims on the colony. Thus, on August 29, 1793, Santonax, in his authority on behalf of the appointed commission, issued a decree of emancipation which would free enslaved peoples in the North Province that was controlled by the Commission, though it should be noted also imposed limits on their freedom in an attempt to maintain order. In the midst of the upheaval, refugees had been fleeing from Saint-Domingue, and it is believed that either by people who had acquired an immunity to the disease and were unknown carriers, or by the larvae of mosquitoes in the holds of the ships from the West Indies, the disease known as yellow fever was carried to Philadelphia. As described by Washington biographer James Flexner, quote, On Philadelphia's waterfront, a man turned yellow and died. Disease spread first among the sailors, grog sellers, and disreputable women of the stews, and then it began to reach out into other parts of the city. Like many urban areas of the time, Philadelphia had experienced times of rampant disease in the past. Indeed, prior to the revolution, according to historian George C. Rogers, Jr., it had been, quote, well known for its yellow fever epidemics. However, as explained by Jan Galinsky in his essay, Debating the Atmospheric Constitution, Yellow Fever and the American Climate, there was a prevalent train of thought in the early republic that the new nation's inhabitants were having a quote-unquote civilizing effect on the climate, which had previously been noted as being one of extremes not experienced in Europe. Dr. Benjamin Rush, a noted patriot during the Revolution and a preeminent medical authority in the nation, had written of his home city in 1789 that, quote, Philadelphia, from having been formerly the most sickly, has become one of the healthiest cities in the United States following the cultivation of lands that had been cleared of forests during the Revolution and the covering of open drains in the city itself. 
The sense of optimism would soon be crushed as yellow fever started claiming its first victims in July 1793. One of the first places the disease's effects were felt was the president's house on Market Street. Polly Lear, by all accounts, had no contact with the waterfront, where the very first victims died. But as we now know, a mosquito carrying the disease was the likely carrier that infected Mrs. Lear. She fell ill in late July and died in the president's house on July 28th at the age of 23. Even in a time where death was a fairly common presence in life, Polly's sudden death came as a surprise. But her husband was noted as having handled it, quote, like a philosopher. Her funeral was a, quote, full-dress funeral that might have bid farewell to a cabinet officer. Secretary of State Jefferson, Secretary of the Treasury Hamilton, Secretary of War Knox, and three Supreme Court justices acted as pallbearers. And in a sign of just how close of a relationship the Lears enjoyed with the first family, the funeral of Polly Lear was the only one that Washington attended while president, a noted break from his imposed protocol of not attending personal functions or events in order to avoid any sign of favoritism. Patricia Brady speculates that it may not have been yellow fever due to what she says was, quote, the absence of the typical symptoms. But every other source I've consulted to date has pronounced it to be yellow fever. That is not to say that Miss Brady is wrong, as there have been many times when something that is known for certain in history turns out, in fact, not to be factual. But without more in-depth research into the circumstances, I cannot say for certain. So I include Brady's assertion as a note for anyone who may want to investigate further. What is for certain is that as August progressed, the death toll started climbing. The quote, victims ran high fevers, spewed black vomit, hemorrhaged blood from every orifice, and developed jaundice before they expired. It was far from a peaceful demise for the victims. Physicians, including Benjamin Rush, started to notice that they were treating more patients with similar symptoms. And indeed, Rush was one of the first in mid to late August to diagnose the disease as the, quote, bilious remitting yellow fever. But other physicians in Philadelphia dismissed his diagnosis, asserting their belief that it was just, quote, another outbreak of influenza or scarlatina, perhaps both. There is no denying, though, that something was amiss. As it started to become clear that there was a potential epidemic on their hands, Washington urged Martha to take their grandchildren back to Mount Vernon for their safety, but Martha refused to leave without him. Betsy Randolph, the wife of Attorney General Randolph, on the other hand, was not willing to take her chances, and by the third week in August was demanding that her husband move her and their family out of Philadelphia. He found a new home for them in Germantown, six miles away, and moved the family there by the end of the month. The city that they left by that point was, as described by Ron Chernow, quote, saturated by the sights and smells of death, with the groaning carts stacked high with corpses that trundled through the streets as their drivers intoned, bring out your dead. To stem the fever, the authorities tried burning barrels of tar, which polluted the air with a potent, acrid stench. The epidemic was by then carrying away 20 victims daily, emptied by spreading panic, most public office buildings shut down, and government employees decamped from the city. The Supreme Court sat in session for two days, during which time they sent their decision to Washington regarding his inquiries on foreign obligations, before finally deciding that under the circumstances, they should postpone their work and abandon the city. Some made other arrangements to be close by, like Justice James Iredale, who was offered lodging outside of the city by Senator Pierce Butler, while others like Chief Justice John Jay returned home to await news. 
Pennsylvania Governor Thomas Mifflin declaring, quote, the existence of a contagious disorder in the city on August 29th led the state government, including the legislature, out of the city. Philadelphia Mayor Matthew Clarkson would remain and would lead a committee to attend to and alleviate the suffering of the afflicted with the malignant fever, which would become the de facto city government and would organize the, quote, distribution of food, clothing, and money to victims of the epidemic. By early September, the federal government was struggling to continue regular functions. Six clerks in the Treasury Department had succumbed to yellow fever, along with seven clerks in the Customs Office and three in the Post Office. Then came the news on September 5th that the Treasury Secretary himself had contracted the disease. In order to facilitate his recovery, Hamilton and his wife Eliza left Philadelphia for their summer residence, Fair Hill, two and a half miles from town. And Washington sent along six bottles of wine and a message of sympathy for his plight. Eliza would soon fall ill as well, and their children were sequestered from them in an adjoining house, with Eliza appearing and waving to them from a window in order to assure the children that they were still alive. The Hamiltons would be treated by Alexander's childhood friend, Dr. Edward Stevens, who, quote, administered stiff doses of quintine called Peruvian bark, as well as aged Majera. He also submerged them, the Hamiltons, in cold baths before giving them glasses of brandy topped with burned cinnamon. He sedated patients nightly with a tincture of opium. To stop vomiting, patients quaffed an aromatic blend of chamomile flowers, oil of peppermint, and lavender spirits. The Hamiltons would soon recover and would proceed on to the Schuyler family's mansion in Albany, New York, with the children. The Secretary of State had little sympathy for his cabinet colleague's plight, writing to Representative James Madison that, quote, his family thank him in danger, and he puts himself so by his excessive alarm. He had been miserable several days before from a firm persuasion he should catch it, i.e. yellow fever. A man as timid as he is on the water, as timid on horseback, as timid in sickness, would be a phenomenon if his courage, of which he has the reputation in military occasions, were genuine. One has to wonder if this callousness was the result of Jefferson having been treated with so little regard by Washington during his recent bout of ill health a couple of months prior, as discussed last episode, while Washington seems to have shown such great concern for Hamilton. While still inexcusable and certainly far from Jefferson at his best, it is at least understandable when considered in that respect. One item that the two men agreed on at the time was that they felt too much was being made of the matter. Jefferson would write to both family and consuls abroad, downplaying the situation. Meanwhile, Hamilton would write an open letter to the College of Physicians in Philadelphia on September 11th in an attempt to halt, quote, that undue panic which is fast depopulating the city and suspending business, both public and private. Looking back on this, knowing the end result of this epidemic, these actions and words seem completely out of touch with the reality on the ground. But it should be acknowledged that avoiding a panic has been a critical role of government for ages, leading on up to the present day. And this was coming immediately after yet another period where the administration was working to prevent a panic during the Genet Affair. It could be argued that the government was in management mode, attempting to present an air of strength and security while dealing with the situation at hand. Certainly, the head of the administration was taking that tact. Washington had planned to return to Mount Vernon in early September, and he would not allow the epidemic to expedite those plans for fear of causing a panic. 
Thus, it wasn't until September 10th that Washington and his family departed from Philadelphia. However, as a sign of the distress behind the scenes in which they left, Washington left his official papers behind. Washington appointed Henry Knox as the de facto head of the executive department in his absence from Philadelphia, with instructions to report weekly on what the situation was in the nearly deserted nation's capital. Jefferson, despite his intentions to remain until October 1st, ultimately found it impossible to continue with official business as normal due to all but one clerk in the State Department having fled the city. So he left Philadelphia on September 17th, bound for Monticello, with stops planned for Mount Vernon and James Madison's Montpelier along the way. The following day, Knox wrote to Washington that, quote, The mortality in the city is excessive. One has not, nor can they, obtain precise information. But the best accounts of the 14th, 15th, and 16th, which were warm days, the numbers buried were not short of an hundred each day. The streets are lonely to a melancholy degree. The merchants generally have fled. Ships are arriving and no consignees are to be found. Notes at the bank are suffered to be unpaid. In fine, the stroke is as heavy as if an army of enemies had possessed the city without plundering it. At this point, the federal government in Philadelphia consisted of Knox, Attorney General Randolph, and Comptroller of the Treasury, Oliver Walcott Jr. Randolph made plans to travel to Virginia, while Knox and Walcott had set up temporary offices outside of the city at a house on the falls of the Schuylkill River. Knox informed Washington in his letter of the 18th of his intentions to leave for Boston the next day. With Knox's departure and Randolph's the day or so after, the last high-ranking federal officials left the Philadelphia area, and the nation's capital was, in effect, abandoned. Let's pause for a moment here. This is something that is almost inconceivable to people of the modern era. Even during natural disasters, such as those that we've seen in the late summer, early fall of 2017, with Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, it is difficult to think of a major American city, in this case the largest city in the U.S. and the nation's capital to boot, being essentially abandoned. However, that is what happened in September of 1793. As the disease which had ravaged the city was little understood, likewise it was impossible to estimate when people would be able to return. Attorney General Randolph, prior to traveling to Virginia, had already been scouting locations for Washington to be lodged outside of Philadelphia, should it still be unsafe upon his anticipated return north. Meanwhile, the College of Physicians worked to determine a series of proper precautions to take to avoid contracting the disease and an effective treatment for its victims. Rather controversially, Benjamin Rush argued within the group that the disease had originated with, quote, some damaged coffee which had putrefied on one of the wharves near the middle of the waterfront district and that it was not contagious. Rush's prescribed regimen for treatment involved, quote, regular purging with mercury and repeated bloodletting designed to reduce bodily excitation by draining the viscera as much as possible. In a published address on August 29th, Rush asserted that, quote, the disease could be brought on in many people by a paroxysm of grief and in many others by an abandonment of hope. And that, quote, the high mortality rate in wooden houses was due to their small size and want of cleanliness, along with his belief that the contagion adhered to the wood. He also falsely claimed that reinfection was common and that people of African descent were immune to yellow fever. Ultimately, the college would issue a series of recommendations, including proposals, quote, that infected patients be removed to a hospital on the outskirts of the city and various actions taken to improve cleanliness. 
washing the streets, whitewashing houses, and dousing the rooms of the sick with camphor or vinegar. Other recommendations would include, quote, that citizens avoid fatigue, exposure to heat or wind, and excessive consumption of alcohol, along with avoiding wearing inappropriate clothing for the season and eating rich or meaty foods. Despite the official recommendations, there were others who proposed alternate causes and cures, and the rumor mill would circulate both person-to-person and in print. Some people claimed that a British ship had brought the disease. Others felt that it was caused by the dead being buried within the city limits. Still others circulated a, quote, rumor that blacks had poisoned the water wells. Then, as now, you had folks attributing the disaster as an act of God to, quote, purge the city of its sinful ways. Meanwhile, most printers and editors in the city felt it their duty to spread as much information as possible about the outbreak and potential remedies. However, that meant that valuable information could be lost in the midst of hearsay and armchair medicine without a shred of evidence as to its effectiveness. Oddly enough, two of the city's leading editors, for the most part, acted as if the epidemic was not happening. John Fenno of the Gazette of the United States, quote, attempted to quell the belief that the fever was dangerous, and the scant information that he provided on yellow fever was contained in letters from Hamilton and Dr. Stevens about how Hamilton had been cured. Meanwhile, Philip Furneaux focused more on defending Genet and largely ignored the epidemic. As noted by historian Mark A. Smith in his essay about the outbreak, quote, Of the 19 issues of the National Gazette that Furneaux published between August 24th and November 26th, the lead articles of only three concerned yellow fever. Thankfully for the populace, those in power took the situation more seriously than the press and focused on the advice of the leading experts of the time. The city did respond to the recommendations of the College of Physicians and took over Bush Hill, which had previously been the residence of Vice President Adams and his family, to use as a hospital on the outskirts of town. Despite the many attempts to combat the death toll, little could be done except to wait for cooler weather. Ultimately, just over 2,700 of the metro area's 6,300 households, or 43% of the households in the Philly area, would be closed up as 34% of the white population and 14% of the black population fled from the contagion. By mid-October, 3,500 residents of Philadelphia, one-tenth of the city's population, had perished due to yellow fever, and it affected residents from all walks of life and even of other nationalities. The French consul in Philadelphia would succumb to the fever alongside its many American victims. Meanwhile, the congressional session planned for December was looming ever closer, and the president had to start considering alternatives to the government reconvening in Philadelphia. Around the same time in mid-October, Washington and Randolph wrote to one another about the possibility of an alternative meeting place somewhat near Philadelphia for the government to assemble, and Washington would send out inquiries to each of his cabinet members, along with Speaker of the House Jonathan Trumbull and Representative Madison, asking for their opinions as to both the practicality and the legality of his issuing a proclamation to assemble the government somewhere other than Philadelphia. The problem was that, upon the adjournment of its previous session, Congress had stipulated that it would reconvene in Philadelphia. The motion to adjourn and reconvene had been voted on and approved by the legislature and thus carried the force of law. Jefferson and Madison, strict constructionists as they were, argued that the president had no right to convene Congress in a location other than the one that they had designated for their reconvening. 
Hamilton and Knox, though feeling that the president had the authority to do so under his power to call a special session, did not feel it necessary in this instance, as it was not an, quote, extraordinary occasion to call such a session. Randolph, as was growing to be his habit, split the middle between the two factions in the cabinet. In his response on the 24th, Randolph pronounced such a move as both, quote, unconstitutional and unnecessary. He felt that Congress should be allowed to meet in Philadelphia as they had previously agreed on their adjournment. Should it prove that Congress is unable to obtain a quorum, or they should feel Philadelphia to be too unsafe to carry forward with their session, they could adjourn, and Washington could then call them into special session in another location. Randolph also reported back on some of his scouting of possible locations for a relocation of the government, with his final recommendation being Lancaster, Pennsylvania which he felt was, quote, able and willing to provide for Congress in every shape, and warning, quote, that unless Lancaster be chosen, New York will be revisited by Congress. It must be remembered that since the Declaration of Independence less than 20 years prior, the capital of the nation had jumped around from city to city up and down the eastern seaboard due to wartime necessities and political intrigues. There was little reason to believe that it might not do so again. And should it move back to New York, the people of that city would be eager to retain it permanently, just as much as the people of Philadelphia were still hoping that the temporary relocation of the nation's capital to their city would prove permanent. Before Congress could meet, though, Washington needed to reassemble his cabinet. Thus, Randolph made arrangements for Washington and part of his household to be lodged in Germantown, Pennsylvania, and Washington arrived on November 1st. Being on hand, he was able to evaluate the situation with a bit more information and made a trip to potential temporary capitals, Reading and Lancaster, as well as actually ventured back into Philadelphia to assess the situation. As he was trying to determine the best location for the government in the short term, he received a letter on a subject which was becoming a trend in the administration. On November 10th, Attorney General Randolph wrote to Washington sharing that he might have to leave his position. First, he noted his recent difficulties in working with Jefferson. However, his primary reason for potentially leaving the administration was the yellow fever epidemic. As he wrote to the president, quote, I am extremely apprehensive that the pestilence of Philadelphia will reduce the practice of law within the city to such a modicum as to force me to think of reestablishing myself in Virginia. Remember, as we discussed back in episode 1.4, the attorney general only made $1,500 a year, which was half the salary given to other cabinet members. And he was expected to make up the difference by keeping up an active law practice in addition to his government service. Randolph was already having trouble making ends meet even before the revenue from his law practice was threatened. Earlier in the year, quote, he was regularly borrowing money or juggling accounts to satisfy one or another creditor. Early in August, he asked Jefferson to endorse a note for him and was politely but bluntly turned down. Prior to this, he had been in debt to Hamilton, a debt which had been repaid in part. He had even had to borrow money to move his family to Lancaster during the height of the yellow fever crisis. No, if he was not able to count on his side money from practicing law, then one way or another, he could no longer serve as attorney general. But did that necessarily mean that Randolph had to leave the administration? Only Washington could answer that one. One answer did come as November gave way to December and cooler weather settled in over southeast Pennsylvania. The fever epidemic abated, and by the time Congress assembled, life in the city was getting back to normal without anyone having to think any more about moving the capital. 
That isn't to say, though, that the consequences of the contagion were over and done with. Lutheran minister J.H.C. Helmuth would look back on what Philadelphia citizens had just went through and write, quote, There are few cities upon which the Lord had poured forth richer blessings than on this, and there are but few indeed that have been plunged by his just judgment into a deeper abyss of distress than our now weeping Philadelphia. Jan Galinsky, in his essay on the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s, concluded that they, quote, reshaped how many Americans thought about the role of climate in their national life. The outbreaks dealt a severe blow to their confidence that the air of their homeland was healthy, or at least undergoing improvement. A new regard for the healthiness of the air in uncut forests began to emerge, as understanding spread about the role of vegetation in purifying the atmosphere. This resonated with Republican pastoralism, the conviction that rural life was an appropriate nursery for a virtuous citizenry. In urban locations, on the other hand, it seemed that specific local problems were producing unhealthy air. Public health seemed to demand measures to improve sewage disposal and water supply, architecture, and town planning. Though they had all gone through an epic crisis, this did not mean that disputes were at an end and everyone would come together. Partisan disputes had continued on during the height of the crisis, and afterwards, Benjamin Rush would get into a back and forth with one of his medical colleagues about the causes of the disease and prescribe treatments. William Curry would go on to accuse Rush of practicing, quote, indiscriminate bloodletting with an enthusiasm bordering on frenzy, and the two would go back and forth in print as the decade progressed. One last item of note. If you'll notice, I said yellow fever epidemics, plural. This is not the last one that the United States, or even Philadelphia, would experience in the 1790s. But the outbreak of 1793 was by far the largest and the most traumatic for both citizens and the government. For now, though, the death and destruction was at an end, and the president, his household, and his administration could rest in Philadelphia once again. With that, we'll go ahead and call this episode a wrap. Though Washington may be resting easy for the moment in the East, there was a growing disturbance in the West, which would soon become a major focus for the administration at a time when they were going through a period of readjustment as one key member of the cabinet exited stage left. We'll get to all of that next time in an episode that I'd like to call Rebellion. Before I leave you, I'd like to give special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. Through party battles and pestilential plagues, Andrew is a rock of support for this podcast, and I couldn't do it without him. If you, like me, could use Andrew's assistance on your podcast or next audio project, reach out to him via email, andrew at foncook, that's p-f-a-n-n-k-u-c-h-e dot com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or whatever that you'd like to send my way, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode, as well as our Washington series episode guide, if you need to catch up on any episodes you may have missed, are available on the web at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn, or find the RSS feed address to plug into your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss another episode. As always, thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.